You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We don't grow when we try to imitate somebody. Um, we grow when we listen to it and go, I like that. I want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been working on a podcast and the entire the entire topic of it was Aspire. And what it is, is as engineers, we get an ideal in our head. And I've been asking my friends who are engineers, where did you get that ideal from? I mean, for me, first records I listened to that said, these sound great were like Pink Floyd, The Wall, um, Tom Petty, um, Damn the Torpedoes. And I just kept going down this list. Those things to this day define, well, what's a good kick sound? What's a good snare sound? What's a good vocal sound? Like, you know, Brian Adams, Reckless. Listen to that stuff. You know, Claremont is brilliant to me because he's adapted with the times. And that, you know, People always say Bob Clearmountain, Hugh Padgham, Bill Schnee, um, uh, Mike Shipley. All of those people shaped me as an engineer, but I could never be them. I don't want to be them. But inspired, yes, that's the thing is to be inspired by somebody. Of course, along the way, we try to emulate, and that's how we kind of get inside of it and unlock it. But, you know, that's the beauty of art. There's, you know, there's about 200 million combinations to get what you want. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we return with the legendary Grammy Award winning three, you know, enduring three, three Grammy producer, <laughs> engineer, and dude that doesn't want to pay the bill for a Neve console. His name is Bob St. John, and you probably heard him with bands like Duran Duran or Collective Soul or maybe Hootie and the Blowfish or Extreme, you know, a band that we love to talk about around here. Yeah. Or if you're in Puerto Rico, you've probably heard him every day of your life because it seems like he's got that market cornered. Yeah, definitely. We, we kind of went reverse order in these episodes. The second episode, we get a little bit more of the full spectrum background of what he does. So if you haven't listened to part one and you want to hear about all his experience with Extreme and Nuno, definitely go listen to that. Yeah. But we get pretty deep in this one on some other topics. We talk a little bit about like the tech and the gear stuff, but we also talk a lot, a lot about his philosophy with working with artists and, and what it's like to be in that world. So I think there's a lot of lessons Be in the to room with in, each other. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons to learn just in, in general in life and business, uh, not just in the audio stuff. So definitely check this one out, part two with Bob St. John. Hello, welcome back to another episode of 2020. My name's Corey here, as always, with Siobhan and Ben, and we're super pumped to welcome back uh, producer, engineer, mixer, Bob St. John, who is uh, sitting in front of his three Grammy Awards Woo! and is perfectly uh, rule of thirds shot for his camera. It's, it's well, you know, put together. It's got the board you guys in there. Don't know, but I actually spent an hour and a half putting this together. And then oh, the, lighting design, the lighting design is absolutely spectacular because if you guys come onto the YouTube, you can see like the it lights the back of the back. Uh, the background has three Grammys and they're just perfectly lit where it's like silhouettes against the wall and then a little <laughs> bit is. of it's brass amazing. shine. <laughs> but we're super I pumped. Had, I had a blue back. wash on them for a little while, but the light kept getting in the shot. So. Oh, understand. Yeah. So, 
It's good. We're glad you took the time to look look nice for our our ridiculous. Well, I did all of that, and then I realized, like you know, at, at one fifteen, like fifteen minutes before, like I need a microphone. <laughs> well, we appreciate that more than anything. You'd be surprised how many people don't think about the fact that the, this is an audio podcast as well. Right, right. Well, you've blown me out of the water. I'm on tour right now, and so I had to find a hotel lobby to go into and put a, put a microphone. But you always on sound a table. good. Uh, yeah, SM7 works I wouldn't every know time. where you were. I wouldn't well, thank know. you. Thank you. That's good. The visual is not ideal, but I got the audio down at least. <laughs> so in uh, in part one, we uh, we kind of went over uh, Bob's career. We talked a lot about Extreme and working with Nuno. There's a cat again hopping in front of <laughs> Perfect the timing. camera, uh, making its appearance. What What's its name? This is Gizmo. Gizmo. Gizmo, Gizmo is awesome. Especially the studio cat. He had, he likes women more than men, but he'll. I'm always I'm always a good substitute. <laughs> oh, he clearly loves you. So, yeah, so cute. He was named Gizmo because when he was a kitten, his ears looked big enough to receive satellite transmission. So he's kind of Aww. named after the Mogwai from Gremlins. Yes. Mogwai. There yes. we go. Visual episode. Make sure you check out the YouTube Mogwai. channel. Definitely, to, definitely. To get the full experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just, we, just, just go get water on it after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> this one, too. I don't feed him. Okay, sure. <laughs> we've uh we've we've gotten all kinds of information so far and uh you know i think uh at the risk of getting too nerdy um i would love to know just a little bit about your setup currently like what what are you you're in miami right yes is that the case and so what 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 is this room like uh for you i'm, I'm guessing this is um, something that you know at this point this, in your career, uh, you've, you've put together um this is the third incarnation it's called pdq studio and this is the third incarnation of it um the first was uh i had built a studio in a garage in a house i had lived in about wow that's probably like 18 or 19 years ago um what happened was uh if you told me back then I was going to be doing mixes and pro tools, I would have laughed at you. I'm like, I'm not a software jockey. I'm an engineer with a capital E. I'm going to sit in front of a big warm console for the rest of my life and probably die on top of it. So I uh, got a phone call from uh, the first, very first thing I actually mixed in pro tools. Um, Pat Badger did a short stint in the band with Jason Beeler. Uh, from uh, Saigon Kick called Super Transatlantic. And I mixed a couple of songs for that in Jason's bedroom on an eight input, eight, uh, eight channel pro control. And that was the first time I did it. I'm like, this looks interesting. Like it has possibilities. And then from there, uh, I had a producer named Pablo Manavello I worked with here was doing a record for BMG Latin for this artist, Ignacio Pena. Ignacio is one of a key client for me because he's from Puerto Rico and most of my Puerto Rican work can be traced back to one of two people, him for the secular music and Jesse Gonzalez for the um, Latin Christian music. And I had met Ignacio when I was mixing uh, Menudo, El Reencuentro uh, live show back at Criteria. And um, it's a, it, honestly, the record's called El Mundo Adreves. It's a great record. I'm very proud of it. That was the very first record I mixed in Pro Tools. Again, they had set up in a house. We had like 16 channel pro control and I gotta be honest. I was actually scared. Yeah. I was scared. I was going to erase something or screw something up or move a region or whatever. But you know, the mixes came out really good. They had recorded the uh, drums in Nashville with the people who played with um, Faith Hill, her rhythm section played on her record. They were great tracks and you know, the songs are all great, impeccably arranged. Um, once I did that, I'm like, this this could work this could be something i could do and because i actually saw 
the way things were going. Um, in the old days of studios, you had the engineer, producer, and an assistant, and sometimes a second assistant. And what I started to notice on sessions is you had an engineer, a Pro Tools operator, an assistant, etc. And I started to think about it and said, why does someone who want to pay me 90 bucks an hour to hang around here and pay the Pro Tools operator? It was only going to be a matter of time before they were going to be paying me anything. Or I was going to have to be the Pro Tools operator as well. A lot of engineers didn't want to go that path. They're like, well, we're engineers with a capital E, like I just said. <laughs> and uh, I embraced it 300% after I did Ignacio's album. And uh, then I got some money and I bought, without having the software, I bought a Pro Control. I got a good deal on it. Back then, 7500 They were about twelve grand for the 8-channel version. And so I had the Pro Control. I had no software, no hardware, no anything. You had to have hardware back then to run Pro Tools. In the middle of this, I had previously mixed a Collective Soul's um, dosage album. We did some of it at Criteria and did some of it at Tree Studios in Atlanta. And Ed Rowan called me up and says, hey, you want to come up and do some mixes for us? I said, yeah, well, we're recording in a rehearsal space. And when the, uh, Anthony Resta was working on it, I got Anthony involved with Collective Soul, and he was producing it then in Atlanta. So I said, yeah. He says, you'll do that? He says, we're not in the studio. I says, yeah, just set up a couple. You got pro controls. He says, yeah, I got those. You got hardware. Yeah. So I went there and I mixed uh, pretty much half the record in a rehearsal space room. There, uh, there, um, Ed's uh, handler, valet, assistant. I can't remember his name. We just called him Weed. Now I can't remember his <laughs> name. <laughs> his name is Weed, man. He had made that room look like a strange brothel. If I, I have to find a picture for you. <laughs> and, uh, and that, then Ed said, listen, any of you guys want to get, you know, Pro Tools, I, you can, I'll help, I'll get it for you with my artist discount. You got 50% off. And that I saw as my opportunity. I managed to find a leasing company that would write a check to Ed's publishing company. And that was how I got started on Pro Tools. Um, I don't know what I'd be doing had I not made that move at that time. Can I ask so, what year this was out of curiosity? This was uh, 2000. Or roughly? Okay. 2000. It was, Yeah. And, you know, so I had mixed um, the rest of that record um, in my studio that was in the first incarnation of this studio. From here, I moved into an apartment that I had completely retrofitted to be a studio um, that was super comfortable. And then I moved here. I've been in this house here for like 12 years because here I can record. The whole, the whole house is set up to record. And the studio's built out from a garage. And I, it took me about a year. I did this whole thing myself. Thank God for YouTube. <laughs> my husband yeah. would say the same yeah. yeah i'm not a carpenter and uh it was a, a huge amount of work so my setup now is i've got a uh, avid d command that's the thing you see here which i think is probably one of the best things avid's ever made um and the xmon which works because i can do both you know regular stereo mixing i've been, done a bunch of 5.1 mixing if you listen to the two extreme live shows those were in 5.1 and uh, I'm going to be working up to doing Atmos by the spring. You just need a couple of speakers to do it. Because this stuff is all configured to do it. Um, I use a bunch of analog stuff here. I've got some very rare vintage uh, Lexicon 224X reverbs. They're expanded versions of the 224. However, uh, they've got expanded bandwidth. They only made probably four or 500 of them before they went to the ones with the Lark, which sound completely different. I'm in love with these things. 
you have to have two of them because when one of them's broken, you can pull the cards out of it and figure out what's wrong. Nobody services them. These were these were made in uh, uh, winter of seventy nine. That's how old they wow. are. Wow, they amazing. sound truly amazing. And you know, people will always ask, "What's that reverb? Is it a plugin?" I'm like, not a plugin. And I love plugins. You know, UAD's four eighty plugins are so good. I had a nine sixty here for a while, and then I started comparing them with the UADs. I could not find a difference. I even copied the settings. I had a friend of mine, Igor Gastaminza, who's a very well-known engineer. We sat and we did double and triple blind tests and we couldn't find it out. And that thing went on eBay about three days later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the rack, uh, elsewise, I've got a DBX-165, an original, that's my absolute favorite compressor. It shows up on pretty much everything I've been doing since 1982. <laughs> and, um, wow. and, and then a whole bunch of mic preamps, Don Hardy M1s, Millennia, some Behringer stuff. Um, I do more recording now than I used to. Uh, when I moved here, which was in 97, I decided I only wanted to do mixing. I didn't want to re- do any more recording. I mean, 10 years of the rock and roll circus with Extreme was intense, and we worked constantly. There's a lot of stuff that I did with Nuno outside of Extreme, stuff that he produced and co-wrote. And, you know, there was the Robert Palmer album we played on. When you mentioned the uh, five-page note earlier, I'll tell you that in a second. We worked with Robert Palmer in Milan, which was a great time for a couple of weeks. What a trip. And uh, and Robert sent the mixes to Nuno just so we could hear them, you know. Nuno said, uh, I remember we were working at Sound Techniques, probably on Susie's record, maybe by that. No, I don't know. I, I don't know what record we were working in the studio together. And he says, hey, uh, you know, I heard the mixes. They, they sent them to me. I says, how were they? He says, eh, I don't know. I think they're a little off base. I says, what? He says, can you fax this for me? He handed me five pages of his classic wrote with a Sharpie um, double spaced crap. And like, <laughs> he likes an really ellipsis. Wants, he likes he the really ellipsis. To, the dot, yeah, dot, that's dot. That's a thing. Least, I think he learned it from me. <laughs> I, I'm the original dot, dot, dot guy. So. Um, so, thanks for that bob uh, we all appreciate you hold on one second <laughs> oh my god this is so great now over time one of my biggest regrets is that we just didn't take a lot of pictures now we take pictures of everything hey right. look at me where am i here i'm here come on i was at abbey road i don't have a single picture of me in that room this is the kind of stuff that, you know, I save. What these are actually is they are five pages of mastering notes when we were doing uh, mastering for Schizophonic. Would you be down to take like a cell phone pic after the episode and send that absolutely, so we can post it up? Absolutely. Great. Uh, yeah, that'd be amazing. Was, uh, you know, that record was, that was epic. You know, we did part of it in New York and then we did part of it in Sydney. And then, you know, we went to New York. It was, I could tell you a million stories about this, but... Nuno being Nuno, he worked on a lot of these mixes with me and made a lot of his minute, crazy changes that never make sense to me. And you're like, <laughs> you'd look in the fader and just be jittering. I'm like, what's up with that? <laughs> the vocals right where I wanted. I said, is there something wrong with that fader? So uh, then he would say, well, let's do a print of this with the vocal down half a dB in the chorus. I'm like, really? So we had 60 reels of half inch tape that had to be lugged around anytime we went to mastering. And then, so I spent 24 hours piecing together all the mixes. He was in Sydney. I was in Boston. 24 hours sitting in front of a half inch machine, razor blade and like crazy, insane notes like this. 
I get the gateway like a week later when Bob Lugwood's mastering it. I'm figuring this is cool. I got a trip to Portland. I'm going to have some really good food. Some, you know, I'm going to get some grass fed burgers or something. And I get there and Bob's assistant says, Hey, Bob says, uh, Nuno sent you a fax. Nine pages <laughs> of edits and instructions for Bob. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, hey, I'm going to write a letter Lugwood. to your mom. Make sure you know, that you and, put Bob St. John know. in the room for 15 minutes facing the wall in the chair. You know, I'm reading like, you know, here's the note, you know, on, on Crave. Make it beautiful. Keep it warm. Could you be more nebulous? <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you know, this is a gravity. It's the most obscure sounding first and second verse in the holes with a vocal singing boost left channel a half dB. Back down with the riffs. Just the second line in the first verse is needed from an edit. So Bob's mastering the album. I'm upstairs, again, sitting in front of a half inch. My fingers are bleeding from cutting everything so much. So he comes down, you know, I said, uh, let's talk to Nuno before we do this. You know, he's like, oh, okay. Nuno's in Sydney and he gets on the phone. Nuno says, hey, you know, Bob, I really like the way that Stone Temple Pilots record sounds. And, you know, uh, you know, Brendan O'Brien does these records. He mixes the whole thing in a day. <laughs> so it's got to be fixed at mastering, you know. Nuno says, yeah, I'm look, kind of looking for that. You know, But, you know, just, you know, do what you do. Just, you know, uh, with as little added EQ or compression as you can. And Bob's looking at me. He's just blinking. And I said, just, just let him talk. Just let him talk. <laughs> it's like, all right, all right, man. Said, all right, man. Can't wait to hear it. So he hangs up the phone and Bob looks at me. He said, isn't compression and EQ what we do here? <laughs> I don't go to mastering sessions. There's nothing for me to hear. I can't tell what I'm listening to, you know, unless I'm mastering it. I don't know what to tell you, you know, <laughs> by the yeah, way, this, yeah. this thing I'm doing here pisses everybody off. Just letting you know, this is my <laughs> trademark. It's a coffee cup on the console. That's so cool. you like to live I dangerously. I totally cool. do that. I, I, like to, I like to lean on this console actually. <laughs> Really yeah, I like to lean really expensive guitars around my studio strategically so people feel like they're going to break something. And I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Nuno, this is no mystery to anybody. I've had Gary and I talk frequently and, you know, we speak of Nuno. <laughs> and this guy, when he loves you, will give you the shirt off his back. He will also claw your skin off if you say the wrong thing. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good way of describing you know it. That's just, it, it goes with being a creative. Yeah. I... Yeah. When I was recording him at uh, Fame, we doing that, that thing with Tyler, the, the brown sugar. I hadn't recorded him in a long time. And Nuno's not a guy who sits around and practices guitar. He's busy with a million other things. And he's just out there just playing. And I hadn't recorded him in a while. And I'm listening to him. You know, the two of us used to have these arguments about him playing behind the beat. It really pissed me the hell off. And he never really... It never really acknowledges that I'm a musician or that I have any musical ability. We used to go over this insane crap when we were recording because, you know, analog style, you got to punch in the same spot all the time. He says, listen, man, this is a difficult punch. I want you to rehearse it with me. And I'm like, yeah. He says, well, show me where you're going to do it. I says, where do you want it? He says, I want you to count it with me. I don't count. So I says, I want you to count it with me. He's going like this, like this, he said, right there. I says, okay, now show me how you're going to do it. I says, you're going to quiz me before I do it. Well, I don't want to erase it. You want me to make a copy of it? Another? No, no, I want to see how you're doing it. So I just do it. I go, Bring. He said, do it again. He says, how are you counting that? I said, I'm not counting it. He says, that's impossible. I says, I'm not counting it. Can we just do it? 
used to make him crazy. <laughs> I would pay to see a TV show with you two on it. I think that would be. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. my god, that that oh that would be really funny actually. <laughs> That would be a trip. I mean, I, I was just going to ask, but to change gears briefly, because we've mm -hmm. talked a lot about Nuno, which is awesome. And I love all the stories, but I'm curious, you know, you mentioned moving to Miami. I'm curious to hear what prompted that decision and building your studio there. And then also some of the artists, other artists you work with and kind of how you got involved beyond your work with Extreme and Nuno and you know, changing from the rock world to just other genres. That's that's interesting to me. Um, you know, for Extreme, you know, like a lot of gigs that we we would call those gigs like the Holy Grail. You get to work with one artist for a long time, but mm -hmm. you know, Anthony Resta and I say this, the Holy Grail is a prison. You're stuck in it. <laughs> and you know, for 10 years when I should have been uh, really using that success with Extreme as a springboard to do other things, I was with Extreme or with Nuno all the time, you know, and excuse me, and that part, um, you get stuck in there. Um, I loved Florida from when we, we had we worked here because we had done Extreme 3 in Fort Lauderdale at New River, beautiful studio that's also gone now. And we did Extreme 4 at Criteria. Mm -hmm. And we Extreme 4 was done in a very interesting way where we did one song at a time. We'd record the song, then go mix it for a day at, a, at another studio, then come back the next week and so on and so on. How we spent six months doing that record, I, I can't tell you, but... <laughs> I had met uh, uh, Susan Zakowski, who's Susan Schilling now. She's married to the engineer, great engineer, Eric Schilling, when she was managing Crescent Moon. And, you know, I wanted to get away from Boston. I'd gone through a divorce. I just wanted to get away from there and didn't want to go to Nashville. Definitely didn't want to go to L.A. And I just don't like New York. I said, I come down here. And Susan says, oh, you're moving here. She says, I can get you some work. And so that's actually all I needed. And by the time I came down here, I was working i was already working on the second duran duran album i'd done which was medazzaland the one i mixed before that was thank you and uh i figured this would be the place to be so i had some work and i had connected with the studios when i was here so you know when i came here i actually had some built-in jobs and that's how i got started uh susan introduced me to like pablo manavello who i had mentioned earlier uh, done ignacio pena with he was working with Raul de Blasio, a very well-known Argentinian piano player. And so I started to meet people. And along the way, I had the Christian work I had been doing. And then my ex-wife hated one of my clients. She hated Jesse Gonzalez so much so that she signed a letter with my name saying I would never work with him again. Um, and what? once he heard I was divorced, he said, would you work with me again? I love the guy. <laughs> and Jesse is, you know, while not a name familiar to you in the Latin Christian business, everybody knows him. And through him, I ended up getting all of these clients from Puerto Rico and people who were Latin Christian artists who lived here. So I started doing those. Um, you know, the, the other stuff, like the stuff I had done uh, from Puerto Rico, which basically for a while, I'm going to say for about two or three years, you couldn't listen to the radio in Puerto Rico and not hear at least four or five songs an hour that I mixed, whether it was secular music or Christian music. I was like, you know, I was the, you know, quintessential big guy in a small pond there. Um, that is what allowed me to be able to stay here because there were so many uh, projects to work on. When the stock markets of the world crashed in 2008, a lot of these people disappeared. You know, they got out of the business altogether or, you know, or they just seriously started to cut their costs. And as a mixing engineer, at th that point, I became a luxury. 
But what picked up the slack in there was doing rock music. And, you know, Ignacio Pena, I mentioned a couple of times because he knew a band called La Secta All-Star, a very big band in Puerto Rico. And from there, I started meeting more people. Um, the, one of the Grammy trophies I have here was was with uh, a band called um, Black Guayaba, who was still one of my proudest achievements because they came to me with absolutely just nothing, a couple of demos. And they said, you know, would you mix our demo? I said, of course, I'm a mercenary. I'll mix anything you've got. So um, we did a couple of songs. And honestly, the first time I heard the songs, there were no vocals on it. That's the scariest ass shit. When people show you something and there's no vocals on it, you don't know what you're jumping in on here. This could really suck. And you're going to be stuck with it for a couple of weeks. So um, I was pleasantly surprised. They're a great band. And they came back like about six months later. And they said, well, you know, we've got 10 songs and we rewrote those three. You want to mix them? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we did that first record. They got a record deal. That first record was nominated for a Grammy just straight wow. out of the box. And they came back and did another album. And that is the album that won a Grammy uh, called No Hay Espacio. It's a great, great record. Um, and that led to a lot of work, um, you know, doing that genre of music, which is basically rock and Espanol. You know, um, there's some good engineers in Puerto Rico who can do this. There's some who aren't as good at it. And a lot of people who are who are just emulating me along the way, which was, I, I, it's, that's actually really flattering. Um because of that and my proximity to it, and because this is reasonably close to Puerto Rico, it's not a long flight, it's an hour and a half, people are coming from Puerto Rico to work with me, and actually they still do. Um, the other jobs, like uh, the Collective Soul came actually through both Susan and Trevor uh, Fletcher, who was managing Criteria. What had happened was we had an assistant who worked on Extreme 4 with us, Chris Carroll, who uh, uh, worked on the sessions. And... Uh, he ended up becoming an engineer and he was working on the, on what would become the dosage album with collective soul. And Ed Rowland was a fan of schizophonic. I never knew it at the time. So, uh, his, uh, he had asked Trevor, uh, Chris told him that, you know, you know, Bob St. John's in town now. And Ed's like, really? It's schizophonic. I love that record. So he had his manager called then Bob ring who was managing me in LA. And, you know, all of those people worked together to get me that gig. And I went down and met with Ed. We mixed a couple of songs. I think Heavy was the first song we mixed. Ultimately, I think that, you know, a lot of that stuff, Tom Ward Algae remixed, if I remember the record. It's very vague now. But that's, you know, one of the most important things in this business, and I tell people this all the time, is you need to have proximity to the work. Sometimes that's actually even more important than having the skill is to be able to connect with, another, with enough people. One of the biggest problems about all of us working at home is we're all at home. We don't connect on the visceral level, you can when you're looking in somebody's eyes. Um, I do a lot of stuff where I'm using um, audio movers to do sessions with people long distance. It's really convenient. I happen to love it because it means you can hear it in the environment you're familiar with. You don't come here, listen to my control room. I don't know what I'm hearing. Now you're at home. You can listen to it. I, can I use that as well. And just for our listeners and viewers, it's a it's a basically a plug-in that allows you to stream exactly what you're hearing on your computer to your clients or and vice versa. So you get like almost, you know, high quality it's like they're in the room with you and yeah. it's great it's great for especially like what's been going on with the yeah. and i i actually set up a whole system where it mutes my audio it's when we're when it mutes my audio playing back when we're not you know when we're when we're just working on the mix so that when i talk i don't have to keep muting it it's really convenient and it works really well for a lot of people but the problem is you know i'm sure you saw the sound city movie right it's a great movie. I, and I watched it with Kay Fig here. It was the first time he'd seen it. Fig's younger 
than than everybody else. And so he never grew up in the system where we worked in studios and you met people, met people from different bands. That thing they spoke of in the movie about, you know, you'd have all these bands working in the studio together and it would be like a like a cross pollinization of flowers that you could get meet people and get to play on their record or get to watch them write or be part of their creative process. We don't do that now. It doesn't happen as often, partly because we're just not near each other. I mean, I got Lee Levin, who's a very well-known drummer who lives here. He lives literally five minutes away from my house. And I mixed hundreds of songs with him playing on them. I haven't seen Lee face-to-face in over 10 years. <laughs> and the yeah. thing is, because we don't interact like that anymore, um, it you lose something. You lose that connection. And pretty soon, we all just stall our start. We've reduced ourselves to a very insular group like well, this is the producer I'm working with, this is the engineer, this is the mixer, this is the mastering guy. And you never really get beyond that. That's one of the that's one of the downfalls of the way we work now. I mean, certainly I'm glad I have a studio in my house. I'd be screwed without it. Um, but on the other side, if I didn't have a studio in my house, I would have forced myself to work more in studios, which in the long run is more profitable, but I actually enjoy being at home. Yeah. Well, while we're on this topic, I want to ask you, as it pertains to bands and songwriting, I I think some of that pattern has also translated into artists now where there's a lot of bands. Like, for example, I'm in a band where the singer is the primary songwriter, you know, and then it goes through. He works with different writers and producers. And I'm curious about your opinion of, you know, whether you think some of that new sound is can stand up to some of the older records where it was bands getting in a room and writing songs together. I feel like there's, it's really common now for there to be like kind of one project head and one songwriter that kind of writes music. And then they assemble a band that, that sort of does the live version of it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would love to be able to see people sit in a room and record together again. Uh, I've got a band that I just, I actually just recorded them live here um, earlier this week. And these guys, they're from Puerto Rico, but they live here. They've been playing together since they were like 17. So it's obviously fun working with them. And they're, you know, they're all super cool guys. There's no, no band, no band drama within them. And I've recorded the drummer many times. He records here a lot. And usually we'll record just drums or just drums to a guitar track or something. But he's a good drummer. His name is, um, um, oh my God. How about that? Carlos. I can't remember. Carlos Benitez, I'm sorry. If you've seen Luis Fonsi play live, he's been playing live drums with Luis Fonsi for 10 years. And uh, so, and I've recorded him a lot. But when he recorded with these guys here looking at each other, it feels just different. That's what we actually need to do that we're not doing. Um, something happens. Uh, it's a certain synergy when people stare at each other and play. You know, I refer to people who aren't musicians or don't, you know, well, people who aren't musicians basically as muggles because <laughs> they don't understand what this magic is. Yeah. You know, muggles because they'll walk into a wedding and they'll see a band playing live and they'll just, they'll stare at them like, is this how this is done? This is, listen, an America's got talent. We don't see this, you know, because is he hitting something? Where is that sound coming from? And it, I'm, I'm being facetious, but literally, the look on their face is like they've either seen the craziest thing ever or the most awesome thing ever. And there's nothing like standing in a room with a band, not in an arena where it's stuff on a screen or anything else, but people playing together. We've all had that luxury. 
you know, you, we've sat in a rehearsal, like right in the middle next to the kick drum, listening to it and just watching people play together. That thing is what we as engineers are supposed to capture. We've taken a back seat to it now because look, you know, typical album budget used to be two, two fifty, two hundred thousand. <laughs> now you're lucky to get thirty. Right. Oh man, that sounds Good great. Point. So I, I want to ask you this because uh, one, I think the cool part about being the age that I am is, you know, my first record was done at Longview Farm Studios, and we called in a Pro Tools engineer. So we were recording in analog, and then we were having it transferred to digital, and then editing it there and dropping things back down. And I saw, you know, the studio. I saw Rome burn. You know, like Ford Apache was in Cambridge. Like I saw them take the Neve board out of that and close that place down where they recorded, right. you know, Hole and Soundgarden and all, right. all these crazy. Like the old, the old school studios have gone the way of the dodo uh, for the not for the most part, but a lot of them have. You know, Sound City Studios. My buddy. Dave worked there and I went there on the last day before they shut off the Neve console to, to wheel it out to Dave Grohl's house. Thank now, cool, my yeah. question, my, my question becomes so like and Corey and I were Corey, Siobhan and I were lucky enough just to go down to Florida a month ago and record on a Neve Mitsubishi console um, from Skywalker Ranch in this giant studio that was like some rich boat guys fantasy studio that he just kind of put together. And Corey and I are like, holy crap, look at this board and all that. Do you think in 10 years, 20 years that all those kids that are used to the actual plugins and all these kids that have heard about this are going to have a resurgence of like, where is that Neve console? Maybe I do need to buy an SSL and that maybe the value will ever be re I guess put back in old school studios. um, It it was common a couple of years ago. People come up and says, Hey, I just saw somebody's got a focus, right? Console for sale for like, you know, in 90,000. I said, what are you going to do with that? Oh, it's a focus, right? I'm sure it was a million dollars when it was bought, but I said, there's something people don't consider when you own an actual physical plant. Like this, the beauty of this setup, I can shut it off. You can't shut an Eve off. It's a piece of industrial equipment. It stays on. The power supplies stay on. And you keep that thing cool. And it's, you know, the Neve is a lot of class A circuits in it, which means it runs hot. There's two racks of power supplies powering all that crap. You don't shut those off either. Those need an air conditioner. The console needs an air conditioner that would that would turn a regular house into a meat freezer. That's why it's cold <laughs> in the studio. It's it's designed to keep the equipment cool, not you. And if you've sat in an SSL, it also runs hot. Go look in the machine room. You hear all the fans running. That stuff eats electricity and you can't shut it off. So once you turn it on, you leave it on. You know, you're looking at like a, an electric bill of two or three thousand a month, just the electricity. And of course, if you shut that thing off, it won't work. You're going to turn it on. You're going to find so many things that suddenly don't work. They're not designed to be thermal cycled. They're designed to be turned on and left on. And that's actually one of the biggest problems. Now, if I was independently wealthy, yeah, I, I, I'd want a Neve. That's what I'd want. But, you know, I'd need a room big enough to support it and I'd have to keep it cool. And, I, you know, I, yeah, I think I'd have to be a millionaire <laughs> with no care because then you've got to leave it on. You've got to keep it cool. And then in the end, how many people are going to come here and record with it? That's the other thing, because those budgets, they're not there. Every now and then you come across somebody who's got some money or more money than sense, and they want to be a musician, <laughs> which, you know, and, and you'll record them. But, you know, that's why if somebody says they want to do tracking. Uh, I, want to, I want to do tracking here because it's inexpensive and it sounds good. Most of the real ambient spaces are gone. 
It's not a lot of real ambient spaces. My living room sounds amazing. And, but that's because I've been recording out of living rooms and weird places. That's how I learned how to record was just finding ambient places to record in. Um, so th- the, the problem is that people don't have the money to do that. And if somebody said, well, I'm giving you 30 grand to do a record, what do you want to do? Spend 12 of that over at a studio or buy some gear and have the gear forever to record with. Right. It's, you know, that's simple economics. Um, the people who can afford that stuff are people with major record budgets who don't care how much money they spend. I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, the old days of this, like Extreme 3 cost 490000 <gasps> and Extreme 4 cost five and a quarter. Don't ask me how that happened, but, you know, um, you've got to consider, I think just the orchestra alone in Extreme 3 was over ninety grand. you know? Sure, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, uh, but that stuff is gone now that's one of the problems is you know i don't foresee any way for the record business to fix what's happened you know we're not all going to be making money i had royalties on like two extreme albums and you know those are reduced to maybe 150 dollars a year now, you know um because the archaic way that the law reads the streaming is just it's such a fractional royalty and, you know, you've got people like, you know, uh, the owner of Spotify, who's a billionaire, basically just <clears throat> set up a platform. And, you know, record labels are all too happy to license it because the music's paid for. So we, we're going to license our catalog to you for $50 million for two years. You still have to pay the artist the royalty, but it's, you know, 0.002 of a cent. So... <laughs> Um, you, I'm sure you've seen all the stories of people, whether it was Desmond Child saying, listen, there's been 50 million plays of living on a prayer. I'm part writer. You know, I've got a check here for you know $175, you know, and when they went to Congress with that and, you know, those people couldn't believe what they were hearing, but still nothing's changed because of that. This is what we deal with these very small budgets and having to minimize stuff, you know, and everybody's got to record at home. So that's our new reality. When I can, I try to put people in the room together because I think you capture something special when you look at each other. Right. Absolutely. I want to ask you, I, I had moved to Miami almost 10 years ago, and I was completely unaware of how massive the Latin scene is and some major, major stars that I had never heard of. But, you know, within the Latin community are like right. some of the biggest pop stars in the world. Yeah. I, can you tell us a little bit about the differences between like the rock scene or some other artists you've worked with and working with Latin artists? Uh, I don't know if there is any difference in budget or what well, they're willing to do to when, produce stuff, but it seems like a, there's a lot going on there that we don't know about. When I started uh, 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 working with Latin artists here, I was um, Susan had hooked me up with this guy named Rudy Perez. Rudy's a very well-known producer here. Oh yeah, yeah, and, I know him. And uh, and I worked with him for probably about a year or so. We did a bunch of records. He'd be doing like seven or eight of them at the same time. Uh, it wasn't assembly line style, but it was awfully assembly line style. And that's where like I met Lee Levin, Dan Warner, who died a couple of years ago, Julio Hernandez. Um, Doug Emery, all these guys play on all of the records. And I remember early on, I can't remember, it was Millie Codetere, who's actually now Oscar De La Hoya's wife, we're doing her record. And we were over at New River. And, you know, Rudy didn't come to a lot of sessions. So he says, hey, put me on speakerphone. And he said, guys, he says, listen, this is the same record we've been recording for 10 years. Don't fuck it up. I'll stop by later. <laughs> and I said, Rudy, you're not you're not coming here? He says, nah, you're a producer. Listen, if they screw it up, just have them play it again. And those were my instructions. <laughs> that 
was my trial by fire. <laughs> and you figure it out after a while. I mean, the thing is, a lot of artists don't spend a lot of time with us, you know, and since the advent of Pro Tools, I've seen some stunts, and I'm not going to name anybody, where you got one job. You got to come in and sing the song. And a guy comes in, he records, this is a well-known artist, and I'm like, hey, I see, he said, you got that? I says, no, man. I says, can you take that bracelet off when we record next time? Because I'm hearing, oh, yeah. not that I care about the bracelet, but if you try to put that into auto-tune, auto-tune mm. will interpret it as something it shouldn't. He's like, oh, all right, man. So we do it. He does one, two, three takes. He's like, all right, man, I got to go. I'm like, <laughs> I said, really? And then what happened was the guy who was uh, ha- managing said, yeah, you guys can Pro Tools it. I said, I can <laughs> I do what? Pro Tools That's it? That's horrifying. <laughs> horrifying? It was a gold album. It's like, <laughs> so you Pro Tooled it. There you go. Good job. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, listen, they're great songs. You know, Rudy's a great songwriter. He had access to all the great songwriters here. So mm-hmm. they were fun to work on. But from an artistic point, no. I worked on one record at, uh, with uh, Julio Iglesias Jr. Super, super nice guy. And I mean, it was a fun record to work on. The guy who was producing was Pete Masidi and Luis Fernando Ochoa, who worked on all of Shakira's records. And Luis is a super nice guy. Luis and Pete did not get along. And Pete co-wrote all of these songs, and he's a great writer. And he meticulously assembled Julio's vocals on this. It's a great record. It didn't really get noticed, but it was a lot of fun to work on. And and Pete and Luis did not like each other. And we were in the studio recording. I'm here. Pete's here. Luis is here. Luis is there mainly, I think, so they could put his name on the record, you know, as a producer, because it meant something. But Pete was doing a lot of the work. But these two guys didn't get along. So when they talked, they talked at me to each other. And then Pete would say something, and we used to be like this, just looking off in the distance. <laughs> and I said, I feel like I'm in the middle of a dysfunctional parental relationship, and mom and dad aren't getting along, and they only want to communicate through me. I And, you know, I speak some Spanish now. I didn't speak any Spanish then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to this day, people still find that amusing and uh, uh I remember my friend Eker said to me, he says, he says, Bobby Loco, with all these Christian guys, don't they know you're a heathen? I said, shh. (laughs) (laughs) You found your little slice of the pie, though, and I love that. I mean, honestly, country music and anything with Spanish over it is just the smartest (laughs) fiscal decision as a as a producer, because like. Where we're, we're like scraping in the guitar world to, to eat, like there's an island of Latin music and probably Latin country music. Yep. That's yeah. like some crazy sect that's making even more than everybody else. So God bless you and your three Grammys, because yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know what? Seriously, it's, you're a great heathen to those uh, those people. Um, I've had. I mean, there was a period in time it did so many rock records and it did so many that those those are i've been nominated 12 times the most recent one was about three years ago this kid from colombia his name is daniel cadena he did an instrumental album and nuno was his idol you know and uh, that's why he worked with me and he came he says listen you know i haven't got a really big budget but you know anytime something doesn't have vocals on it i'm happy i I would work on instrumentals for free to be honest as soon as you have vocals it's funny you say that we have (laughs) a band called (laughs) (laughs) our new song is is 12 is 12 minutes and 47 seconds long so we're we're, (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't say that. Cut yeah. that out. <laughs> um, How it, many it, tracks it, are there, Corey, of just trombone? Uh, oh, 16, I think. That's not uh, a joke, by the way. Are they in tune? That's all I care. They are now. They are in tune. They are now. <laughs> I'll just say that. They are now. Pro Tools. We'll Pro Tools it. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> believe me, that was the old days of auto tune, manual, graphical, and Pro Tools would crash every like you know hour or so. And if you didn't save it, you lost everything you worked on. And I, that's, that's the old I days learned, that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> I learned Pro Tools by tuning vocals. Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't have known it at all. And that. You know, I've got relative pitch, so I can do it without looking at the screen or anything else. But, oh, my God, <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Melodyne now. Uh, to, to me, that's the ultimate any of this is ever going to be. Um, but, uh, Siobhan, to answer your question, it's uh, there is a lot of artists here. But most of my interaction was usually with the producers, you know, with you know Julio Jr. I had absolute direct interaction with him because we worked together. But. Um, and Black Guayaba, the same thing. Uh, La Secta, All Star, also. Those guys I've now known for like <laughs> 20 years, I guess. And uh, I've done pretty much all of La Secta's rec records. Um, uh, they've had, you know, super success with what they've done. Um, and I enjoy that angle. Um, what, one of the things that I find off-putting is sometimes I'll show friends who don't speak Spanish and aren't involved in this market here stuff that I've done. And when they hear it's in Spanish, they stop listening after a minute, which actually mm -hmm. pisses me the hell off mm -hmm. because I don't think music has a language. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, uh, you do need to know a language and know how metaphors work in Spanish to be able to record a good vocal. Um, but I've been able to pull that off, too, because I know enough Spanish and I know enough about what's a good performance without sounding overly dramatic. Um, uh, but you know, music doesn't have a language. It's a language unto itself. And I always listen to stuff. You know, there's an artist from, I think it's from Argentina. He died a couple of years ago called Gustavo Cerati. Incredible, like, rock, pop music. I mean, and these are great sounding records. And they were done in Argentina. Well, I want to say Colombia or Argentina with talent that was there. They didn't hire Tom Lord Algie or some other person to do it. They did it there. And when I hear stuff like that, that's always an eye opener to me. I love hearing how other people hear things and like really good mixes from people. I have no idea who mm -hmm. they are. A uh, client gave me a record to listen to. I'm going to think of it. Mm, it's like a heavy rock band. It'll come back to me in a minute. Yeah. Well, um, I was not, not to change your thought, yeah. but you were about to tell us the story of an of, uh, uh, artist that came in and Nuno was his idol. Did, I don't know if you yes, finished Daniel that Cadena. We Anyhow, that's, I, sorry, thank you for channeling me. No, it's um, all right. Uh, uh, he came in with this record. Great record. I mean, he's an amazing guitar player. And again, all the recordings, I've worked with a bunch of artists from Colombia. There's another artist called Don Tito. Also, these guys give me some of the best recordings I've ever heard, period. Like, you know, you'd be surprised. Like stuff I get from this country, sometimes I, I got to spend half my time just trying to figure out what it was they were trying to do. <laughs> so Daniel sent this to me and he's an incredible guitar player. And, you know, I hear Nuno's influence on them. And you know, we did this record. It was so much fun. We used uh, audio movers when we did it because he was in Colombia. And I had done other records for him that he had produced. Uh, that's how I got to know him. And, you know, a lot of these people know about because of my association with Extreme or Collective Soul or Black Guayaba. Those things uh, carry throughout the world. And uh, we did the record. 
I mixed it and I mastered it. And uh, he was just so happy. And how about he gets nominated for a Grammy <laughs> the next year? I still can't believe it because he's actually not on a label. He just released this record. The album's called Mutante. It's a great record. And you know, guy's a great player. Um, and awesome. he had great musicians playing on it. Um, but you never know when one job can turn into something like that. I always say to people, it's important to take everybody's dreams seriously. You know, when I've trained young engineers, I always tell them that you have to take everybody seriously and what they want, because you don't know these four guys in a band, one of them is going to split off and he's going to be in a major band and he's going to call you. And, you know, to me, one of the most off-putting things engineers do is try to project their point of view into your music when you want something else. And I've always said to people, I says, when you go off in the world and you're doing a record, if it comes back to me that you were mixing a record for somebody and you wouldn't even try an idea they had or give them what they want, I'm going to find you and personally kick your ass and box your ears. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then send, and then advice, send Nuno Betancourt to them for the next mix so they uh, can just, feel what it really feels like and then come back and really realize that, like that, yeah, and, and, and that everybody else, it's just trivial by comparison. <laughs> No, but that, I mean, that's amazing advice because it's so yeah. true. I mean, you yeah. never know where people are going to go and when they're no, going to call back on you. We're facilitators for artists. We're not really artists and we are artists, but our job is to give you as musicians what you want to get that dream out of your head and onto those speakers. Um, I've done this a long time and I've been lucky to have this experience at least once or twice a year. Somebody will give me something. I'll do a mix for them. And they'll call me up crying because they're so happy. And to me, that makes this entire job worth it. You know, some days it sucks. It's a pain in the ass. People send me something, it's 160 tracks, you know, and then I've got to try to assimilate something out of it. Um, but in the end, I tell people, this is, as an engineer, um, this is going to come across my desk. I'm going to spend probably a week with it. And however, the artist, they're going to listen to that record forever. I may never listen to it again, but it's theirs forever. I want them to listen to it and smile because if you don't, then why'd you hire me? You know, if you wanted somebody to suck, you could have hired anybody. You know, the object I'm, here I'm also is, available. If you want somebody who sucks, just send it, send it my way. I'll, I'll make it, I'll pro tools the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the new podcast. Pro tools with Corey. <laughs> Don't tell no me. shit, man. We're going to Pro Tools it. It's all set. <laughs> and we also, we also have the mastering websites where you can just send it, upload the file, and then they just put like a limiter on it and yeah, send computer it back does to it. you. Yeah, it's, it's artificial <laughs> intelligence, they'll call it. You know, it sounds great, though. It's almost as good as Bob Ludwig or Ted Jensen. <laughs> yeah, Ted's, Ted's my current favorite, you know, but I, I have had to say to Ted, please, not so loud. That's all. I love everything he everything he's done for me that band i think i was mentioning was i prevail that was the name of the band oh okay okay yeah we've really? toured with them many Looking times good wow and that record ted metz mastered that but i didn't recognize any names on the record and that's a serious turn on for me because i'm tired of seeing the same six people mix everything not mm -hmm. that they're not good at it but there's a lot of other people who actually are also good at it and that mm -hmm. to me i'd love to see um, you know, a diversity of talent, I think, is what's really important. Uh, diversity of the talent pool, that is. Yeah, absolutely. I, well, I was going to say, I just want to say thank you because, you know, uh, like Porter Graffiti, for example, was, uh, when I used to go across the country with my parents and my dad wanted me to shut up and got a power inverter and figured out how to send a little 
power cable to my Walkman so the battery wouldn't die. I listened <laughs> to extreme porno graffiti on repeat. Next to, by the way, classic Queen, Queen's Greatest yeah. Hits, yeah. Van Halen 1984, and I think yeah. Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, and Aerosmith Get a Grip, because I was from that era. Yeah. And those Great were like my tapes I had in constant rotation. And I got to tell you that, like, you know, I, I now do this. I'm now broke just like every other audio engineer. <laughs> but I, And Nuno's my favorite, and I've gone through all that torment so I can empathize. But that said, <laughs> I want to say thank you, because honestly, uh, your record shape, at least for me, uh, mm -hmm. A lot of what I've tried to emulate, not like I've learned or reverse engineered you or even sound even remotely close, but when I've tried to make things sound like what they're in my head, a lot of the yeah. things in my head are you. <laughs> well, this is, well, thank you. This is, this is the thing is that we don't grow when we try to imitate somebody. Um, we grow when we listen to it and go, I like that. I want to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been working on a podcast and the entire, the entire topic of it was Aspire. And what it is, is as engineers, we get an ideal in our head. And I've been asking my friends who are engineers, where did you get that ideal from? I mean, for me, first records I listened to that said, these sound great were like Pink Floyd, The Wall, um, Tom Petty, um, Damn the Torpedoes. And I just kept going down this list. Those things to this day define, well, what's a good kick sound? What's a good snare sound? What's a good vocal sound? Like, you know, Brian Adams, Reckless. Listen to that stuff. You know, Claremont is brilliant to me because he's adapted with the times and that you know people always say bob Clearmountain, hugh padgham bill schnee um uh, mike shipley all of those people shaped me as an engineer but i could never be them i don't want to be them but inspired yes that's the thing is to be inspired by somebody of course along the way we try to emulate and that's how we kind of get inside of it and unlock it but you know that's the beauty of art there's you know it's about 200,000 combin 200 million combinations to get what you want it's and you know you never know where you're going with it actually 470 billion for melodies <laughs> we just talked to a guy named damien real who copyright all 470 billion possible melodies as fact and put them into the public domain so that we can't sue people anymore and george harrison doesn't want to write songs because of the chiffons <laughs> when what you were just saying um with the uh you know trying to emulate to get to that sound uh i think that that's a huge part in people coming up with with their own sound we talked to uh john denay from anthrax and he mm -hmm. talks about he would try to learn songs and guitar but he would always you know fuck it up and it just played his own way and that's how he developed his sound because it's like you aim for that you know what you're hearing in your head and you might miss a little bit but that becomes your sound and, and the way you do things and that's how you have your own kind of sonic palette you know and i think that that's right. exactly that's super helpful. exactly i mean listen when we're doing the extreme records you know we liked warren Martini, like george lynch those tones were iconic to us um and that's where we were going not that nuno is either of those players but you say well this is kind of the curve we're looking for sonically and then you go there and then you develop your own thing from there and once you figure out a basic way to capture it once you know what you want to do um, then you know what mic to use and where to put the mic. This is the thing is, you know, the things I see people not teaching when I watch uh, tutorials is why did you pick an 87? Why did you pick a 57? Why did you mm -hmm. pick a 414? Why did you pick a Royer? Why did you do that? Um, they never really talk about that. They'll just say, well, you should use this mic. And the thing is, as an engineer, you hear a sound, you go, oh, I know what would complement that. Or I like this tone, but it's too bright. I'll put the Royer in front of it. You know, 
that's stuff that is innate to us as engineers that we actually don't even talk about that you know and then you've got somebody who's just trying to learn and they've got this idea i've got my plugin alliance package and i'm going to put my eq on it and i'm like hey no eqs <laughs> you know i don't use eqs until i mix and when people look at my mixes and, and pro tools they'll say do you why don't you use plugins and i said I i've got a handful i like to use like the ssl's ssl plugin i like reminds me of my con of the console you know um but in the end the less is more actually works you end up with more headroom you end up with more of everything that you want and you're not constantly chasing headroom high-end issues and this sort of stuff um again like we said i think we said it in the last interview was let's just record what you want to get get it down as close to what you can and don't be thinking like eh, i can fix this later mm -hmm. um you know uh, you know and and what we were saying about the di i think that's an important thing to have as an engineer that doesn't mean i'm going to use it but if i'm mixing it i want the flexibility and if i'm giving it to somebody else to mix i especially want them to have the flexibility um it's okay to use the technology as i said don't let it use you <laughs> yeah awesome. great, great great advice seriously Absolutely. thank thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us today you know this has been huge uh for me personally and uh, i think it's yeah, very fascinating it's awesome. for everyone checking it out um we're going to put all the links you know to for places to find you uh in mm -hmm. the description but if there's anything else you'd like to add yeah. Anyone? I think that's about it. Yeah, that, that wraps <laughs> it up. We, yeah, we covered a lot of ground and it was really awesome. I, I'm the one that's the least engineer techie here. And it was really fascinating <laughs> to talk to. I'm a violinist. So I come from like the total acoustic You're world. Of, like, you held your own. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so no, I, it was really I great to talk to you. I have one last question because I want to apply this to my life. Okay. When <laughs> does one use an 87 versus a 57? on a guitar cab because I usually use a 57. I've, I have an 87, but I rarely use it because I feel like it sounds like kind of sharp to me, but I'm, I'm also like now I, I plug into my Kemper because it still sounds better than anything I try to do. But I'm curious if I was to plug in my 87. The Kemper when I sounds use it. nice. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I like all the amp emulations. I love the amp emulations. Have you seen the Quasa emulations? They're like no. 30 bucks a plug-in. They're fucking wow. amazing. I mean, they're amazing. Really? And Quasa. yeah. Yeah, Kwasa. There's a guy named Jim Bachi who was uh, in the band Hitman, and he was in this other band, Fuzz Bubble, great band that just never came out. Um, and he turned me on to this. He says, you got to check this out. And I'm like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Couldn't believe how inexpensive it was. And just how many options you have. I'm not a guitar player. I, I My grandfather taught everybody in the town I lived in how to play guitar. He's a musician. And, you know, a very short story. <laughs> Try to condense it. We were recording Extreme 3 nobody loves guitar who doesn't play guitar more than me. I love guitars and all about guitars, amps, pickups, and all the crap that goes with it. I just don't play it. Nuno said, you know, play guitar, do you? We've known each other like, you know, 12 years at that point. I said, no. He says, really? He says, Pat, Bob doesn't play guitar. He says, Pat says, you don't play guitar? He says, no. Come on, I'm going to show you something. So Nuno says, put my guitar on. So I put it on. First of all, when I play air guitar, it's always left-handed. So he says, no, no, not like you play air guitar. Put it on the other way. He says, you're right-handed. Yes? Yeah. So I put the guitar on. We were all set up to record solos. So he says, all right, I'm going to show you something. He says, put his fingers here. He says, it's a smoke on the water. You can do this. Okay? He said, you can do this. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And if you think he gave you shit, so he goes like this. He's watching. I'm still in like, 
He says, seriously? I said, I don't know, man. It just, it feels unnatural to me. I, I couldn't fret the notes right. They're all out of tune. Like, he's like, you got to be kidding. Pat says, you can't play smoke in the water. I says, I can't sm- play smoke in the water. And Nuno goes, user. <laughs> we yeah. really appreciate you very very much and, and again thank you and i hope you'll come back sometime and share some more knowledge with us I'll because come uh, back and, and talk all you want guys Corey, Corey and i want to come down to where siobhan lives in miami maybe we can poach on some <laughs> of your leftovers absolutely when <laughs> <laughs> you guys are in town please please look me up yes i'm in hollywood right between lauderdale and miami awesome perfect yeah. oh we will We'll, we'll do great. a group trip. Thanks so much. <laughs> right, right, guys. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. Check out 2020-D.com and we'll see you next week. Thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode 109 featuring Nuno Betancourt of Extreme. Check it out. I said, I can't believe it. I finally got the Aussie gig. But I'm an Extreme. We sold fucking records. I don't just leave Extreme, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, holy shit. I was just like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. You know what it's like back then. You get the Aussie gig. You're the dream guitar player. You're the guy. You're the guy in the scene. You're the Jakey Lee, the Randy Rhodes. You're the fucking guy that they want. Getting the Aussie gig is like you won the fucking golden ticket. It's the Willie Walk-Up guitar player. You're on the cover of every fucking magazine here. You're doing the next album. You're fucking, you're doing it. But yet, I had a success with Extreme. I was already on the covers of some magazines. I fucking had done it. We had some hits. We're doing, what am I going to do? Fucking leave my fucking band? So the words come out of my mouth. No, can't do it. Killed me. Killed my heart. Staked it to the heart. No. Stupid because Extreme broke up like fucking three weeks later. (laughs) Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.